Thomas Merton once said, perhaps I am stronger than I think. Welcome to the 57th episode of St. Dymphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth, one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of you to realize that you have more strength inside you than you could ever imagine. Strength to hold on to the hope, strength to carry on, strength to cling to Christ and move forward one step at a time. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. We talk a lot about the inequalities in the response of law enforcement when it comes to those suffering with untreated mental illness. And a recent story caught my eye that connects with this topic, so I thought I would share it. It's from the Dallas News. Quote, mental illness is a growing focus for law enforcement with departments estimating that up to 20% of calls are related to mental health. The Irving Police Department has now fulfilled a pledge to improve how it responds to people with mental illness, all connected to the One Mind campaign. In completing the pledge, the Irvine Police Department established a sustainable partnership with local mental health organizations, developed and implemented a written policy to address officers' interactions with those affected by mental illness, required all officers to receive mental health first aid training, and required 20% of officers to become certified in the more intensive crisis intervention team training, which includes training on de-escalation techniques, and role-play scenarios. In addition, Irving Police led a behavioral health leadership team, which includes representatives from mental health service providers, municipal court, and local housing authority, who meet regularly to discuss trends and solutions for efficiently managing mental health resources. The group is the first of its kind in Texas. I bring this story up because I want to give credit where credit is due. We often try to work on alternatives to 911 that are more faithful to the mental health recovery model, but we also have to recognize that in the panic of a crisis, 911 and the local police are still going to be resources that people in our community reach out to. And with that in mind, it's critical that those entities become trained and steeped in a model that promotes safety, understanding, and recovery within the ranks of those working for those entities for the sake of those suffering in our communities. That being said, this is an example of the bare minimum, really. I mean, only 20% of officers getting trained in de-escalation techniques. It should most definitely be 100% of those officers who may be on the phone or in person with someone going through a mental health crisis. So again, this is a great starting point for reform around this issue, but a wholesale changing of the system is probably what it's going to take to keep those experiencing mental health crises safe. So we've got a lot more to fight for. On to the next topic, slightly related because it's something the Irvine PD required all officers to participate in. What is mental health first aid? I've actually brought this up quite a bit when talking about what dioceses and parishes can practically do to start moving in the right direction toward becoming a place where those experiencing mental health symptoms can feel welcome, safe, and supported. But what exactly is this thing I've been talking about? KTVB from Boise, Idaho helps us answer this question. Mental health first aid is something people of all ages can be nationally certified for, just like CPR. The program is built and designed to help people identify if someone needs mental health assistance. 
and provides the knowledge for that person to point the person struggling to the right resources. Mental Health First Aid is an effort to bring some of the attributes of good mental health to the awareness of everyday citizens and help them understand that they can really assist someone who might have a mental health issue. In the course, those who are participating learn a lot about mood disorders, suicide, anxiety disorders, trauma, and even serious mental health issues like psychotic disorders. We used to think that only someone uh, some, someone who was a doctor could help a patient resolve these issues, but the reality is that the contribution of a community and even a society at large could really improve the viability of someone who struggles with chronic mental health issues. Involving people from our community becomes really important. Mental health first aid is so awesome. Uh, and something the church should be exploring to help us become the advocate for mental health wellness and recovery in our nation and our world. It takes educating the entire community. It takes fighting stigma everywhere we see it. And it takes every single person learning to see the dignity and value of every other person, no matter their symptoms, no matter their mental health experience, no matter their inability to take care of themselves in any given moment. Every person has dignity. Every life has meaning. And mental health first aid can help us better live that by teaching us all how to be comfortable with and actually help those who are suffering. Anyone can be trained from priests to office staff to mail carriers to you listening. So get online and check it out. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to share a little bit about St. Rose of Lima. In 1586 in Peru into a large family, Isabel Flores de Oliva was given the nickname Rose by her parents because of how beautiful she was as a baby. From a very young age, Rose took on penances including fasting three times per week and other penances that she kept to herself, but one would become well known. When she was admired for her beauty, Rose cut off her hair and smeared pepper on her face, upset that men would be beginning to take notice of her. She also started to allow herself only two hours of sleep per night, focusing herself on devoting the rest of her day to prayer, and perhaps most well-known of all of her penances, her crown of thorns. The Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia provide more about the crown, quote, About this time, she cut off her hair, trying to disguise the lack under her veil. When her mother discovered the catastrophe, she expressed her displeasure with great vehemence. At first, Rose tried to resist wearing party clothes. Uh, then she discovered that she could conceal thorns on the underside of the rose wreath around her head, making the wreath into her own crown of thorns. So we can see that St. Rose of Lima undertook dramatic behaviors in her walk with Christ, but we can also see that she was empowered by the Holy Spirit to have the right focus, and she grew in her love of the poor, her prayer life, and in many other ways that bore fruit down through the generations that would come after her. Today, while she's often associated with the mental health experience of self-harm, I see St. Rose as an excellent intercessor for us as we work on our own healthy coping skills to help us when the desire to self-harm assaults with all its might. Through her prayers, I firmly believe that we can receive grace from Christ to reach out for help, move forward on the path of healing, and truly find peace, the peace that God wants us to have. We like to close this part of the podcast out with a prayer. God, our Father, for love of you, St. Rose gave up everything to devote herself to a life of penance. By the help of her prayers, may we imitate her selfless way of life on earth and enjoy the fullness of your blessings in heaven. 
Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Father Mitchell gets us started as a topic idea, if you haven't already done something along these lines, Christian friendship and its relation to mental health. Man isn't meant to be alone. Iron sharpens iron. These apply on every level of human nature. Even before the pandemic, I was seeing how people struggling with friendship were more easily anxious or unable to talk through their difficulties and things like that. The pandemic has made it worse, of course. Thank you for sending this in, Father. And let's start by praying for everyone who finds it difficult to find friends, everyone who struggles to maintain good relationships, and for all of us that we might remember how important our friends truly are. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. We have some pretty incredible models of Christian friendship down through the generations in the lives of the saints, St. Perpetua and St. Felicity, St. Ignatius and St. Francis Xavier, St. Basil the Great and St. Gregory, and so on. A Catholic news service piece by Paul Sens gives us a glimpse into just how important friends are. Aristotle identified three types of friendship. Friendships of utility, where the friendship is based around the benefit that can be derived from it. Friendships of pleasure, where simple enjoyment comes from the friendship. And friendships of virtue, where wherein the friends share a pursuit of virtue and the will of the good of the other, helping them along the path toward virtue. This last is the closest to what Christians would consider an ideal friendship and is certainly the strongest tie. Thinking back to that list of friends I mentioned earlier, St. Gregory once wrote of his friendship with Basil, Our single object and ambition was virtue and a life of hope in the blessings that are to come. We wanted to withdraw from this world before we departed from it. With this end in view, we ordered our lives and all our actions. We followed the guidance of God's law and squared each other to virtue. Uh, if it is not too boastful to say we found in each other a standard and rule and discerning right from wrong. Pretty incredible. Of course, making friends with good people interested in a similar pursuit of holiness can be downright difficult, not even considering the impact of the pandemic on our socializing and opportunities to meet with others. Since a lot of us struggle with this, here's a few ideas for making friends that you might be able to kick into gear once the pandemic situation improves. Volunteer. Get involved at church. Meet people with similar priorities. Grab your dog and head to the dog park. Nothing binds people together like the love of a good pet. Actually ask the friends you have if they want to hang out. Sometimes we just don't think to text or call or meet up with people we're already friends with, and we just sit around lonely, and they're sitting around lonely. What are we thinking? And yes, I've got to say, it. Engage with people on social media. Use social media to develop good, healthy, and actual friendships and relationships with people. Just remember to put the phone down every once in a while. Anonymous is up next. Recently, I've been working with my therapist over trauma from emotional abuse and hypercriticism directed at me for pretty much my whole childhood until I left for college, and I find that I don't really know how to deal with the feelings it brings up. I swing between feeling insanely angry at the people who caused the trauma and super sad, and then I get anxious about whether or not I'll ever be able to move on from the trauma. And I know you're supposed to like, quote, feel your feelings, but I guess I'd love your take on how to do that in a healthy way. 
I'm so glad you sent this in anonymous. I really think this is a topic that will help a lot of people listening. Let's start by praying for anonymous and everyone going through the hard work of experiencing difficult feelings and learning to cope with those feelings in a healthy way. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. First off, I want to say how incredible it is that you've reached out for help and are engaged in therapy to process everything you've been through. That shows such an incredible strength, and it's such a beautiful witness. I just wanted to say how awesome it is. Second, I want to underscore the importance of feeling our feelings, as you mentioned, allowing them to come, but allowing that to happen at first without any judgment or without any need to fix things. When we're starting to go through this experience, we really have to fight the urge to fix ourselves or get down on ourselves for experiencing certain feelings and kind of just let them flow through. At some point, however, we're ready to engage things a bit more, and that sounds like that's where you're at now. In a certain sense, there comes a time when we can weigh out what our feelings are doing for us and then decide how best to take action. Like, anger at someone who put you through a traumatic experience in the past is normal, and there's nothing bad about it about us if we experience that anger. However, at a certain point, we might notice that our anger is creating problems for us, leading to feelings of guilt, leading to decreased frustration tolerance with those around us who we love and had nothing to do with the traumatic event in the past or even lead to depression and a loss of interest in our everyday life. So once we weigh out the impact of our feelings and what they're doing to us, we can select a course of action, either doing nothing because the impact isn't that serious or working to restructure our thoughts and thus our feelings around the situation if we recognize the emotions are causing us problems. As to your question of how to deal with these emotional extremes in a healthy manner, here's some ideas from Very Well Mind that I think are a great place to start. Using distraction to cope with strong emotions. Sometimes focusing on a strong emotion can make it feel even stronger and more out of control. Therefore, by temporarily distracting yourself, you may give the emotion some time to decrease in intensity, making the emotion easier to manage. Next, practice self-care to improve your emotional health. Taking care of yourself, for example, getting enough sleep, eating well, exercising can do wonders in reducing your vulnerability for intense emotions. Next, self-soothing coping strategies. Affecting self-soothing strategies may be those that involve one or more of the five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, sound, taking a soothing bath, right? Whatever works for you. I don't want to like name a bunch of things here because it's going to be what's specific to you. And last, practicing mindfulness for your emotions. Mindfulness is an excellent strategy for managing intense emotions. Intense emotions can be very distracting and they can take all of our attention away from the present moment. So again, go online, look up mindfulness exercises, and you want to look at things that are going to keep your mind focused on what's happening in the present rather than letting your emotions take your mind away from the moment and just running you around and around in these awful circles. So keep up the good work. At Just a Soul 8 wraps us up today. It'd be great to get your take on the role of birth order on our personalities. For example, my wife, a firstborn, is very by the book, loves the TLM. I would, a traditional Latin mass, I should say. I would describe her as dogmatic. I'm the second born and youngest. I prefer to color outside the lines. I like the Novus Ordo mass and have a looser view of spirituality. Just wondering how much is genetic and how much is environment, especially related to our birth position.
This is such a cool question and not something I really come to think about much until I had kids of my own. So let's start by praying for all of us, no matter where we land in the birth order of our families, that we may be loving and accepting of everyone we meet, no matter where they were born within their families. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. For those who may not know, what we're talking about here is the order a child is born within a family, firstborn, secondborn, etc., and the idea that the order may have a profound and lasting effect on psychological development. Alfred Adler was the first to really bring this idea to popular psychology, and we'll be reading a bit from Wikipedia to help keep us on track here. He argued that birth order can leave an indelible impression on an individual's style of life, which is one's habitual way of dealing with the tasks of friendship, love, and work. According to Adler, firstborns are, quote, dethroned when a second child comes along, and this loss of perceived privilege and primacy may have a lasting influence on them. Middle children may often feel ignored or overlooked. Younger and only children may be pampered and spoiled, which <laughs> was suggested to affect their later personalities. I'm an only child, so that's why I was a little bit sarcastic about that part. Now, of course, this all hinges upon the idea that all <laughs> that almost all families are nuclear families, which isn't really true, and also doesn't seem to take into account living apart from extended family, spacing between births, twins and other multiples, and children having severe physical, intellectual, or psychiatric disabilities, right? So <laughs> now, while the general public uh, thinks that it's pretty well certain that personality is strongly influenced by birth order, many psychologists dispute this. Claims about birth order's effect on personalities have received a lot of attention in scientific research, with the conclusion from the largest, best-designed research being that the effects are, hang on to the edge of your seats, actually zero. Such research is a challenge based on the difficulty of controlling all the variables that are statistically related to birth order. Family size and a number of social and demographic variables are associated with birth order and serve as potential confounds. For example, large families are generally lower in socioeconomic status than small families, hence the third-born children are not only third in birth order, but they're also more likely to come from larger, poorer families than first-born children. If third-born children have a particular trait, it may be due to birth order, it may be due to family size, or it may be due to any number of other variables. Consequently, there are a large number of published studies on birth order that are confounded, which means you can't really follow what they say. Uh, so, even though you've noticed personality traits that seem to correlate to birth order, and even though I've noticed things with my own kids, the children of friends, and other people I know as adults, it seems as though it's all just anecdotal, and we might be drawing conclusions that don't actually come out in the research. Still, super interesting, though. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in the future, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dymphna. 